Hi, Charlie. Uh, the podcast to hell and back. Um, it's uh, oh gosh, Wednesday, the twenty sixth, I think, of September, two thousand eighteen. Um, and uh, what I'm going to talk about today was not my plan as of last podcast. So if you're tuning in or listening, thinking that I'm going to talk about uh, skills that are used with or taught within DBT for people with addictions, substance use disorders, uh, that will be deferred probably until my next podcast, which will be two weeks from now. I'm off next week um, teaching elsewhere. Um, so let's see. That's so. I'm not going to talk about that. And and what what I'm going to talk about. I'm actually a little bit outside my usual. Um, comfort zone in what I'm going to talk about. Um, I do feel expert in some of the things I've been talking about. I mean, knowledgeable about them because of teaching them over and over and over again and practicing them. Um, this is getting, this is based out of that, but is also, uh, an area where I'm, I'm less, uh, definitely less expert and more just another member of the dialogue. So here's the thing. The thing what's affected me that changed my direction here today uh, is the current national uh, drama in the United States about uh, the nomination for the Supreme Court of Brett Kavanaugh uh, and other events going on in our larger national story these days um, that are very... Uh, and I find it not not only does this every day affect me and trigger me to think about things, think about my own past, my own uh, high school days, my own way of interacting with women and men, but um, uh, also I'm day in and day out in treating patients. They're affected by this dialogue and they're talking about their experiences. It's been kind of like a Oh, a whole dialogue and a whole set of circumstances that have caused people to lift up the cover off of their memories of um, aspects of their own lives related to, uh, you know, partner violence, uh, just being mistreated, uh, being uh, um, a bully, being a victim of a bully. Um, lots of things that are kind of being talked about every day and that people seem to have stored deeply after high school and uh, middle school and college and still live with, uh, you know, in a very vivid way once it comes out. So um, I've found some of that for me, and I just thought, you know, let me bring a perspective to this larger discussion. But this is where, you know, I am no expert in this larger discussion. I just want to make it clear. Sometimes people confuse expertise, thinking that if you know one thing, that must mean you know other things. But I don't necessarily know other things. I'm not a, a social psychologist. I'm not a sociologist. I'm not a, a political person. I'm a commenter on political events. So please just take this all with a grain of salt. In fact, with, uh, with uh, talking about this particular kind of thing, of bullying, of victimization, of in-groups, of out-groups, these painful things that have uh, left people uh, reeling and that keep coming up. You know, I have a very limited perspective uh, in that I'm, uh, I'm, I'm a white male who has uh, experienced a lot of success, uh, who's had a lot of good breaks, who's been to some, uh, though I went to basically, you know, public schools through high school, um, that I've been in elite privileged schools since then and, and had recognition and had all kinds of privileges that go with that. So um, all of my thinking comes first from that perspective and then the perspective of people I know best, like my wife and my children and what they've gone through um, and my patients um, and what they talk to me about. So, I, you know, that's, that's really it, but uh, it's harder for me to formulate my thoughts and say, oh, listen to me, I know what I'm doing. So just think of this as a part of the dialogue. And um, I'm really open to, if, if any of you write me after this and say, 
You know, I think I have a perspective on this that's worth contributing because I think this is a version of hell in life that people have had that's right in front of our eyes. And uh, please write me and tell me that and let me consider whether to devote a podcast to opening up the uh, mics here and having dialogue uh, or dialogues about this topic if it seems useful. Um, Okay. Um, how do I want to get it going about this? Really, I want this first. There's sort of several several points I want to make, I guess, and each one is a big uh, requires explanation. Um, one is going to be, um, in a way, say it's it should have the title something like uh, "Let's go back to high school." It could include it could mean middle school, it could mean college, it could mean other life situations that have a lot of the same ingredients. And I think what we're seeing in the current national drama in the United States is that there's a lot of these high school in-group, out-group, bullying, victimization ingredients, even in uh, people into their 50s and 60s and 70s and even 80s, participating um, um, in a way having trouble getting out of the uh, power dynamics that go on in high school. Um, so I want to first talk about high school. Um, I want to talk about the, uh, that'll get into the sort of social uh, order, social fabric, part of it in high school. Part of it that is understandable, but also leads to devastating uh, quiet outcomes, sometimes not so quiet. Uh, talk about the, um, maybe you might say the a way of understanding all of that happening in high schools um, from the point of view of emotion regulation uh, and skills and deficits in emotion regulation, which also might suggest some directions to take if somebody wanted to do something about it. And I want to talk about doing things about it. And um, yeah, so that's probably, I'll, I'll probably get to that in the background of, of what I'm going to be saying, and it won't matter for the first half at least of my comments, um, I'm going to get, be getting back to wondering how the things I've been talking about for several weeks, which is kind of a part of the skills training in DBT, especially the part that has to do with awareness uh, and acceptance and tolerating crises, how it is that that whole set of skills I've been talking about could be brought to bear on this situation uh, for an individual, for a group, for someone in high school, for somebody who's way past high school. Um, okay, so let me let me talk first about uh, high school, and um, this is where my observations are limited. I went to a, a reasonably large public high school in Portland, Oregon. It was a downtown high school, so there were groups of students from a variety of walks of life from in-town kids uh, and uh, who had not many resources um, and some of whom came from somewhat rough neighborhoods, uh, kids from up on the hill, the West Hills, um, that had more privilege, more money, um, professional families, high aspirations in school and things like that. Um, and and a variety of other kids. And my own myself, I would put myself in that second category. Um, maybe different. You know, there's everybody has their own version of these things. But I was in the, it was grew up in a middle class family. Uh, my father didn't make a ton of money, but he did pretty well. He did okay for raising five children, and we all were able to go to school and get some help going into college. And um, and and my parents had both been college graduates. Um, so. I came into the school, you know, connecting more, joining more, um, more of the time with the kids that were doing well in school, that had college aspirations, and uh, that liked to talk about uh, things that we were doing in school and some ideas and stuff like that. But I was also, um, my head was and part of my body was into being an athlete. And I, I wanted, that was my aspiration, was to be a great basketball player, really, like to just play ball day and night and uh, if possible get into professional basketball. And it turns out that my my 
my mind was uh, not where my body was. There was no way with my body that I could do. I just wasn't fast enough or strong enough to do that. Um, and uh, so, but uh, but it meant that I trafficked quite a lot with the athletes of the high school. Um, I want to talk about when when a kid enters high school, the first day of freshman year, I was thinking about this. This is where the emotion regulation problems come to the foreground. Because any kid that starts high school, any kid that starts a new school, a middle school, but there's something very loaded about middle school and high school. Um, you know, you're kind of, you, you may have lots of skills and you may have, you're bringing something on board. You may have looking for opportunities. You may feel like, oh, I'm going to be okay there for various reasons. Others might not feel that way, but everybody is entering a jungle in a sense, even the one who is, looks as if they are secure. I would say I might have been one of those. Um, looks like, oh, he's going to be an okay student. Maybe he can play sports here. Uh, maybe he has some friends because he's coming from another school and these kids are coming to the high school. And so, so there's all that. But there's also the, the dreams you have when you enter school that you don't know where you are. You can't find your school. You can't find your classroom. You can't find your locker. You, you didn't wear the right clothes. And all of these things that are reflective during the night of the daytime anxieties, which are also there, of looking around from the day you enter high school, looking around and saying, who am I going to be here? Is there a place for me here? Do I belong here? Do I belong to anyone here? Does anyone belong to me? It's really like entering a a jungle, entering a prison, entering a new school, a new community, a new job. I mean, all of these things get awakened, and everybody is vulnerable. There's nobody that's that secure. Um, and, and yet there are all kinds of secure-looking ways of handling it. But everybody's like wondering. Some people already have prefabricated plans of these are going to be my friends, and this is going to be my best friend, and this is going to be my sports and this is going to be my extracurricular activity and there is all of that so those are solutions that come up um, but there is the um, the uh, we ranges from anxiety to terror to enter that situation and look around um, and I think people scurry to find where they're going to go who they're going to be with and uh, sometimes the cognitive overload at the beginning is very confusing about what you're sup even supposed to do, where your class is, where the bathroom is, where the gym is, where what the period, the time of the periods, etc., and all of this crazy stuff that makes you feel very uncertain about yourself, but also you look around at other kids and you think, oh, hmm, that person looks better than me. Gee, that one sounds smarter than me. God, that one's really athletic. They weren't that way in my uh, middle school. Um, oh, I'm going to do all right here. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm really on top of my game here. And I'm, you know, so there's a lot of jockeying. There's a lot of worrying. I mean, there's been studies done about um, kids who are having trouble in school emotionally, and uh, the thing that they have in common more than any other single thing uh, to get motivated for going to school in the morning is that uh, they are kids. Uh, the kids who are doing better after they're at school for a while, are the ones who, when they walk into the school, their eyes are looking for the eyes of another kid or a teacher uh, or a coach, that there's somebody there they're looking for. And that means, you know, yeah, there's a connection in this building that I have. I'm looking for it. And when I find it, oh, I'm going to be so happy uh, and feel more secure and feel more familiar and things will be better. And uh, and then there's kids who you can see them in these studies of videotapes of kids walking into school. They're not looking for anybody. Um, they just and they and if you follow them around, they're not looking for anybody. They just haven't found their way into the social order, into a connection, into familiarity, and school can be really hell for them and just a struggle. And there's not somebody to go through it with. So this is, I think, a first perspective on this. And I think that from the emotional regulation perspective, that means that someone is probably encountering a wide range of potentially painful emotions, um, anxiety, uncertainty, confusion. What else? Uh, 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 fear. 
Um, shame, uh, self-judgments, humiliation, um, sadness, disappointment, heartache. Um, it's really all there, and uh, and and there's not there's not a level of necessarily of security, but if you feel you're part of a group, it helps. Um, in fact, I want to say about this that though there's all these skills that are taught for emotion regulation, and we've gone over some of them with respect to people I've interviewed on this podcast who've been through some horrible life events, wondering how they got through and what skills did they turn to that in every single podcast that I did like that with interviews, um, at one point or another, very prominently, the person would bring up uh, the role of social support. And I think when it comes to regulating emotions, uh, it just, you know, it has to be uh, seen front and center as a huge element. Like, what is your social connectedness? Um, and then, of course, there's lots of skills that really make a difference, but it might be that first and foremost, a lot of problems of emotion regulation get solved, maybe not permanently, but either either temporarily or permanently by the nature of connections and groupings and who am I, and sometimes all it takes is one other person, and sometimes it's being a small group, and sometimes it's it's being in a program or a big group or a, you're a football player and there's the whole team that you feel part of and there's the lacrosse team and there's the chess club and there's the me- people who are putting on plays. All through high school, there's groupings and groupings and groupings um, of people. And I think that these groupings serve to help people with emotion regulation problems, which I'll be getting back to. So you enter high school there, and what do you see? I think after a while, you see social structures that have been there, God, forever probably, um, perpetuated from one class and one generation to the next. Um, and they're very, they're so typical and that, that here it is for me more than 50 years later. Uh, you know, I think I hear the same stuff from students that I know that are in high school. I mean, the thing that's hugely different is the presence of uh, smartphones. Um, and people rely on smartphones as uh, to help cope with emotions and loneliness and uncertainty and confusion and feeling part of something. Maybe you aren't part of any group in particular, but you are part of a group because you're one of the many, many, many kids who's using a smartphone. And you are maybe, maybe you don't have any friends at the school, but you have 365 friends on Facebook, uh, if that's what you call a friend. And some of them might, might be sort of friends. And so there's all that going on that's different now, uh, than when I was uh, going through high school. Um, I want to highlight a couple of, uh, groupings of people because this is what I think has been unfolding and to some degree the, effects of these groupings have been damaging and are unraveling in front of our eyes in our national uh, dialogue. Um, there, uh, let me put it this way. There are, um, there's group, one grouping is the uh, kids who play sports and who are best at it. They have recognition. Uh, they have street cred, you might say, in the high school. Uh, their pictures are up. They're in local newspapers. They're recognized at assemblies. They're at games that other students go to. They are heroes. Uh, they are uh, experiencing high school in some ways like no one else does. Uh, they, I think that it, it fosters an idea or a feeling, a concept, and then a, re- a reality to some degree that maybe isn't as perfect as the concept. That the, This is a superior group. Um, highly recognized, talented, uh, out there on the field, uh, warriors. And then they have, uh, they look around at the high school and it, it creates for them, um, even if the person didn't intend this as the reason they're doing this, they're probably, they might be doing this because they love the sport, they're good at the sport, this is how they connect the people, this is how they have fun. But they find in a high school setting, that it brings all kinds of other privileges. Uh, the privilege to uh, say and do outrageous things. 
that other people might not get away with. The privilege to have, when you do say and do outrageous things, sometimes in public, sometimes in small groupings, uh, you have a you have a cohort that will laugh with you, that will uh, egg you on, that thinks it's cool what you're doing, even if it's antisocial. And so there, it's kind of a privileged group in what they get away with. And it's privileged in that other people are afraid to confront them and get intimidated by them. Even people who admire them, who like them, who like to watch the games, who think these kids are really cool. I mean, there's also like, don't get in their way. Don't challenge them. Don't call them out for saying something mean. Because there is part of the privileges that go with this is the privilege of being able to say mean things. It's almost like, seems doesn't seem it should be necessary, but it seems to go with the territory, uh, to say derogatory things to other boys. If I'm talking right now about a group of boys, which wouldn't have to be, but it generally has been that. Um, I know about it with girls, too, uh, from girls' schools that have sports teams, and there's some of this that goes on there. But typically, my experience was with boys, was, was as a boy, and, you know, the things that people feel that they're entitled to say and do uh, is beyond the norm. And it is reinforced uh, by the bystanders that don't want to say anything, even if they think something's wrong. By the insiders who don't want to say anything, even if they think something's wrong. Um, the way you can get the hostility that's in these kinds of actions directed right at you if you challenge somebody and at you not only from one person, but possibly a group of three or five or seven. Um, so it, it could be that your own experience of being recognized, of, of, of having a grouping, of having social supports, of being somebody at the school, can be uh, hanging in the balance if you have the guts to say something uh, value-driven about what's going on. It's just really hard to do that skillfully without getting your head chopped off. So there is the privilege of that. Um, there's the privilege of being front and center in everybody's uh, awareness at the school. And sometimes you can sort of see, and I can still remember the guys over 50 years later that would walk around in our high school in these roles, the real superstars uh, from our high school point of view, um, that would walk around looking like they're they're aware, their awareness is on how other people are looking at them because they're cool, because they're important, because they are known names in the school. So there is that kind of like power that comes with performance. Um, and then just to turn to the thing that has really been uh, on the front and center of the national dialogue is like these boys in these situations also seem to have uh, the privilege or the entitlement of treating girls in the way they they uh, want to, thinking that anything goes, thinking that they can choose whatever girl they want to have and, and, and treat girls as if they're possessions and as if they're playthings and, and be mean sometimes, say really nasty, denigrating things, which used to be done only in person or now are probably done more on social media. Um, and talk with their other uh, entitled guys about those other people in ways that are very derogatory. That I I was in on con I was in the room. I was in the locker room. I was in the bus. I was in various places where conversations like that would go on. That are just you know I just felt uh, what what do I say now? And I wish I was going through it again, having given it a lot of thought. But I didn't I didn't have a ton of courage there. Um, I'm not sure how much difference there was between me and them in some ways. I'm not sure if whether I had the uh, athletic talent that some of them had and the privileged position some of them had by virtue of that. I'm not sure how I would have behaved. It's hard for me to sort of be the clean, pure one uh, as if those things wouldn't have come to me to, to behave that way because it's very socially powerful. Um, there are other... Uh, but but that was terrible. I mean, I thought. I mean, and I think it. I think what's learned later, over the years, and and even now, and people I've even talked to in the past week, women that I've talked to or heard from, it's like, uh, yeah, they remember 
high school, they remember how they were treated by a certain boy. But one of them talked to me, one of them who's a, who's a professional person, very accomplished, very good at what she does. Um, and she was, uh, in high school, she was a good athlete. She was a popular girl, um, and all of that, and smart as a student. Um, but she remembers that in high school, after being there a while and sort of navigating the jungle, she felt like, and she seemed to feel ashamed to say this, that the way for her to ensure her own sense of security and standing at the school wasn't from her own talents, which she had so many of. It was who was she with? Which boy was she with? What group of boys was she with? And so she was not only everything else she was, she was a cheerleader, and it was, she said it was largely for this reason. And then she was connected with them, and then she would be dating, you know, the, the guys who were recognized, which just by dating them gave her a higher visibility and status and sense of importance and self-esteem. So, you know, it's like, wow, if even she, you know, who is not going to go that route if they can? And some people won't. Some people don't care about that. Some people are just not. So I'm only talking about part of high school, but it's a very influential uh, subgroups, uh, these girls, these boys, uh, the bystanders who are the wannabes, want to be that girl, want to be that boy, uh, the ones who are in there and don't like what's going on, uh, but, but aren't saying anything. And then other people are just turning in other directions. You know, there's this other group in most high schools, and this is more the group I was part of. And, uh, in some ways, in its own way, it might have been just as bad in terms of some of the, uh, attitudes it cultivated, which was the academics, the kids that were grouped together in the uh, in the higher uh, paced tracks academically and who got to know each other by virtue of that and who were interested somewhat in academics and who were able to do those things. They kind of their prowess showed in the classroom and in things they wrote and stuff. And uh, that that group of people would be a grouping. I can remember being in my high school cafeteria, my freshman and sophomore years, hanging out at the same table, having lunch. I was the kind of person who was a little bit conservative. I had the same lunch every day for years. It was uh, a hamburger and a uh, strawberry milkshake and french fries. Um, I don't know how I got through uh, health-wise to this age, but... That was it. Um, and then I would be sitting with these guys at the table and I would be in classes with them and we would talk and joke and laugh and everything. But what I, what I wasn't noticing at first, and then I started to notice, especially when I really got a crush on a certain girl who was not in the in-group of that kind. She was smart. She was in some of those classes. But she came from, you know, it would be like if, if, she, if this was a song about the girl from the other side of the tracks, it was her. And, um, and, and I liked her a lot. And, uh, and the guys in my group would make denigrating comments about her. Uh, they were nasty sometimes. They, and they wouldn't act them out the way maybe the sports group would in their own ways. But it was there. And it was, I think, I'm sure it was experienced and perceived. And when you were on, when you were there, it was like, oh my God, well, what gives them the right to say that? And am I part of this group? And what am I doing? And what should I do? And I would stand up and say some things there, but it didn't really stop. And I eventually divorced myself, so to speak, from that group and, and started dating that girl and hung out with her. And, um, and that all, and that changed how I was treated by that group. Um, so all of this crazy stuff. Uh, that that we're defined by our social relationships to the power groupings. Um, but, but, you know, one of the ways in which my uh, views are very limited and why I would welcome any of you that want to uh, talk to me about this uh, to consider coming on a podcast is that, um, you know, I did do well academically. I worked really hard academically, too hard academically. It limited my fun and limited some other things I did. But I think it was my salvation and that I was desperate to um, find my own place um, 
where I was recognized, where I was within that group and I was a higher guy, functioning, higher functioning guy in that group and looking for awards and honors. And I would get those and I got lots of recognition. And though this was a regular public high school, I did go off to um, to Harvard and then to Yale Medical School, very elite places and among people who really came from these other kind of places like prep schools and stuff. And so that was a lot of who I knew. And so my perspective is that I also was a high recognition person, have always been a high recognition person. I haven't learned to live in the shadows. I haven't learned to live as a freshman, uh, though I was really scared when I was a freshman. I just didn't know if I'd find my place. And same thing happened again when I went to college. Um, so I think that these things affect everybody one way or another. You can't not have it affect you if you're in a high school setting that these things are going on, that you're aware of these things. If you're listening to this podcast, if you're still listening after all this time, um, then you probably, my guess is that you too know where you were in relation to these dynamics and maybe other groups that I'm not talking about. There are lots of other groups within which people uh, gain uh, recognition, they do performance, they develop talents, they show their stuff and all of that, obviously. So um, I don't mean to say that they weren't there, but um, these are the groups I knew the most about. Um, and there was a nasty edge to a lot of the, these groups um, and, and, and a sense of entitlement that was really unfortunate. So, 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 so. Let me shift gears. Having said that, and I think the, the damage that has unfolded uh, that we've learned about in people's lives. And now, unfortunately, one of the things that happens is that the people who have been in those privileged, in-group, entitled positions feel entitled when somebody calls them on it to do it again. And I think we're seeing that in our national dialogue, in our literally in our Senate, uh, as there's this attempt to to, uh, to follow through with the nomination of this judge who clearly came from the in-group in his high school, in his college, with a group of guys that were entitled to all these kinds of things. And by the way, I haven't mentioned alcohol at all, but alcohol seems to go hand in hand with this kind of entitlement and, and add fuel to the fire. It adds recklessness. It adds the impulsivity. It, it, it helps people do things that maybe they would have thought twice about, even though there's a lot of support within the group for being able to do things and laugh about it. But it's like, oh my God, this man, if he did what he's being alleged to have done, and it seems I have no reason to think that, and I have every reason to think that the, the women that are talking about this are telling exactly what happened, at least as best as their memory tells them, and, and that he did these things, and that these things are are not okay to write off as just locker room stuff, like normal high school stuff. I mean, maybe it is relatively normal, but it also um, shows a certain lack of uh, responsibility, uh, and a willingness to uh, 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 perpetrate uh, really negative stuff uh, thoughtlessly towards uh, girls and then women and then to slam them and deny it all when it's brought back up um, and to, you know, out of his search for being at the top, which now his, his being in the high school grouping means being in the Supreme Court of the United States. And it's just this high drama. So emotion regulation, here's what I want to say about this. Um, I'm going to say some things that if you are a DBT expert, you already know all of this. So bear with me for a few minutes because there are a lot of this podcast is meant for everybody. Uh, and there's some things I haven't really talked about yet in the podcast that I think apply here. When I say that all of these uh all of us have entered high school and other situations with these uh, uh, emotions and a lot of fluidity of how we, unpredictability of how things will go and uncertainty about the role that we'll play, even though we think we know sometimes. Um, there's still everybody's in some ways in a fluid state and, um, and trying to cope. And just the way boot camp is a stressor for one's physical being, 
one's muscles, one's coordination, one's stamina, and all of these physical characteristics. I think entering high school is kind of like the equivalent for the emotion regulation system. Uh, it challenges the system. It pushes you. And there are casualties from it, just as there are casualties from boot camp. And the last thing you need in coping with this, of course, is to have some uh, importantly designated entitled uh, group that starts to uh, look down on you, denigrate you, or do physical things to you, physical or verbal things uh, that are abusive. It really leaves a scar for a very, maybe for life. Um, so we're all in there trying to regulate uh, all these emotions I mentioned before. We're all looking for security, and we're looking for, you know, a way to be satisfied to some degree. And we're all trying to deal with emotions, but guess what? Nobody, when I think of high school, and it may be different now some places, nobody, as far as I can remember, this, this has to not be true. I mean, I, there must have been some side comments. But n nobody taught or coached in any systematic way how to cope with these emotions, how to be in class when you feel terrible about yourself, how to be in class when you feel you're in an out group, how to walk through the hallway when it looks like everybody else is grouping up and you're not. How to deal with uh, being uh, pushed out of a group, dismissed from a group. How to cope with your disappointment in your peers when you see what they're doing. I mean, these are all like unbelievably valuable things to talk about. And there are skills for every one of these things. And yet nobody taught anything. So I just think there's, there has been and probably still is most places a massive deficiency an invisible deficiency on what to do when you're in these challenging emotional situations. I mean, how many kids know to step back and activate inside yourself the capacity to observe what's going on around you and, and how it triggers emotions inside you, to have an observer status within your own mind, and to notice how a comment, one comment or one glance on your way to or from school or in or out of class, how one glance can set off wrenching, gut-wrenching feelings of, oh my God, I'm such an idiot. And what to do about that other than to just curl up and die or, or just avoid everybody or just suppress it or just blame yourself for being worthless and maybe start to have suicidal thoughts when it gets bad. Um, it's like even that one skill of the capacity to observe your emotions coming and going like a wave, the capacity to observe reality, to see reality for it, what it is, to separate out the judgments from the facts and react to judgments as judgments, even if they carry pain with them, the capacity to observe, describe, and non-judgmentally stay with your emotions and just be there with shame and be there with fear and maybe seek out solutions like, you know, connecting with certain people, certain friends, going to therapy. These days, being in a DBT skills group um, while going through high school it might almost be a requirement for high school. Um, there is, there are those programs now going on rela related to what DBT experts have developed for classrooms. Um, but it's just, you know, it just has just, they're very valuable and they're, they just haven't yet, of course, penetrated very far. So people are going around facing a high stress emotional situation, lacking skills internally for what to do with it, being offered social solutions, right in front of you, uh, almost like recruiting for a fraternity or a sorority or being, being, you know, finding, oh, yeah, you're a good athlete. Oh, yeah, come, hey, come over to John's house. His parents aren't going to be there. Let's hang out. And then it's like you go, it's like, oh, my God, 
I'm part of the group now. And you go and they treat you like part of the group. And even though your anxiety remains and you know, and you feel like I'm not, I really don't deserve to be part of this group, but I'm part of this group. It provides you cover, cover socially and cover emotionally. And so these things are reinforced, especially in the absence of knowing whatever else would you do. That's why I say that I was as vulnerable as anybody going in, um, in many ways. And I could have, um, if I was a better athlete, and I was at that party at John's, or I was doing this, or I was doing that with, with the other guys, or I was on the bus rides to the other school, uh, and I was part of the shenanigans that would go on. Uh, I was never, I never was that comfortable with shenanigans like that, but maybe I would have gotten more comfortable. Um, because it really has huge social payoff and huge emotional payoff to kind of bury your experience and temporarily sort of put a cover on it. So, you know, these things, uh, offer themselves as solutions. And then once people who lack skill and lack direction about how to regulate emotions, and they end up in one of these positions, in these entitled positions, in these group positions, in these important positions, in positions that bestow superiority on you. You're in those positions and almost, and then, and, and sometimes drink in those positions with other people or just sort of hang out and, and kind of like cast stones at other people, so to speak. It's like um, this just perpetuates itself, and then you see new freshmen coming into the high school, and you see which groupings they join, and then you've got ones that never join a group. I certainly knew kids in my high school that seemed like they were never part of that, and when I look back, I think, how did they cope with that? How did they cope with those swirls, you know? Did they have security within themselves? Were they just incapable of being part of these groups and so they found a way? Did they think of killing themselves in high school? Uh, which is not an unusual thought. Uh, it's sort of like, uh, yeah, how do people cope with that without the skills? So, you know, as you can hear, of course, I would, uh, my, my view is that the solutions to this kind of thing uh, which are really hard to reach, are for everyone to realize. Everyone that's in it is in it. Everyone is in this situation that's challenging. Everyone is in this community that fragments into these social groupings that shoot at each other or that uh, are snide or that are entitled or that end it and that at their upper edges of that kind of stuff hurt each other. They feel entitled to do damage to another person and not think twice about what you did um, and resent it when it's brought back up. You know, the whole Me Too movement is really bringing up a lot of uncomfortable things for men. And I think that a lot of the women uh, in these situations feel um, ashamed that they didn't do more then. I think that the people on the sidelines, I was sort of a, uh, on the sidelines of some groups and I was central in another group that where within which I could get recognition, but um, I'm ashamed that I didn't grasp this and see the long-lasting damage that can be done by things people were saying and doing that I may have known some about and that I would hear about some somewhere here and there, and that I didn't do stuff about it. I didn't do more about it. I just wish I could redo that stuff. But I think the idea is that everywhere this goes on. As I was walking out of work today and walking through a little mini mall toward a parking lot where I parked my car, I was looking around from the perspective of, what if I see somebody here denigrating another person? What am I going to do? What if I see somebody that's really being mean to another person? What am I going to do? And, uh, you know, it's still uncertain, but I think that's where it would be. And also, how can you approach people without, hold people responsible without inflicting uh, judgment and blame upon them? That's really hard in the current national dialogue. 
It's like how people think about uh, not only Judge Kavanaugh, but people he was with, and then other people, and, and men who have uh, subjected women to sexual abuse. Um, you know, it's really evil. And it isn't necessarily helpful, and I don't think it's even necessarily that insightful, to uh, just judge them as if they are different sorts of beings than the rest. I like to think I haven't done as much of that stuff, but I've done a lot in my own way, I think, without intending to, but having an attitude of entitlement. And I think that, you know, this I, I do think the solution to something like this is the solution of everybody uh, being uh, stepping up and taking responsibility, everybody starting to notice that they have emotions, and those emotions can turn into urges, and the urges can turn into actions, and the actions can be regrettable, um, especially uh, in the person upon whom they were inflicted. So how do you generate that kind of level of consciousness, of community, of responsibility, that everybody is your brother and sister, and that it starts within, because people who say, well, I, I'm a good guy, I never did this, or I was a victim of this, or I was a bystander, and they did this. All of that, I think, misses, is all probably true, and misses the point that everybody takes part. These things don't just go on just because of the perpetrators. You know, these are not private, private settings all the time. These are large things. It's sort of like the perpetrators of this kind of entitlement are dependent upon people not to call them out. They're dependent on people to egg them on. They're dependent on victims that um, cannot come back and take them on. Uh, they're dependent on dividing and conquering others, and others allow themselves to be divi divided and conquered. They're dependent on lack of courage. And so it goes on. And, 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 and probably the best way to get at it is to address it when it's small, when people are just being, you know, holding each other in contempt or in judgment and, and saying nasty things like my friends in high school would say about the person who became my girlfriend and about many other people. There was, I started to just get increasingly a perspective of, oh my God, I am part of a group that's really snooty and that's really nasty uh, in their thoughts. And just because they have good brains intellectually or academically or they came from professional families, it just doesn't seem right. And somehow I think, I don't know why it was, I always had a piece of me that identified with them and a piece of me that identified with with this girl and, and with people from... Um, that, that didn't have everything and that were, um, that were on the short end of the stick. Um, and, uh, and by saying that, I don't mean to be excusing myself. It's still, still, I was the uh, silent, uh, person in many situations. Uh, so, um, I think it comes down to that. And I think it also comes down to, uh, gradually and increasingly make, making people aware that there are solutions to these feelings that don't require hurting other people, that don't require acting superior or becoming entitled. There are solutions. And they're radically different than that. And they involve radical acceptance of things that are painful, radical acceptance of things of limitations that we all have. It involves observing oneself and one's emotions and one's thoughts and one's judgments, and it involves um, um, finding ways in difficult moments to just accept reality and to just settle down and things I've talked about, uh, about the reality acceptance skills, and that when things get really bad and when, and when you're going to do things that, that are not appropriate, you know, stepping aside and using some of the crisis survival strategies that I've talked about to distract yourself and to really try to stay within your uh, values. So there are lots of things to do, and I think that, you know, they, they get done one person at a time. It's like Thich Nhat Hanh's teachings about, you know, peace, generating peace around the world, quite a big task, is every step. Peace is every step. I think it's a profound message. It is, uh, 
it's Gandhi. It's uh, practicing uh, being uh, what you being the change that you that you seek, and it means doing it personally, doing it personally, and doing it internally, and noticing where you go with these things, and that actually, if you think you're the clean one, the sideliner, the victim, or something that's never done anything to anyone else. You know, it's like, think a little deeper. There are ways in which we have all participated in allowing people to do what they do. Um, in a way, we are also the perpetrators. We're the perpetrators of the perpetrators. And I think that attitude would help. I think it helps me try to get in the right direction. So, you know, um, uh, I'm not going to say any more right now. I don't have anything more to say about this, and I'm going to stop. Um, I want to say that uh, I'm, I'm not doing one next week, but I'll do my next one, which will be my 32nd podcast. I think it's been a year now. You get into October. I think I did my first one in October by starting to interview um, Domingo uh, Marquez from uh, Puerto Rico about the hurricane. Uh, so that was my very first one, podcast number one. And so I'm, I've rounded the corner. I think I've done 31 in a year. And I'll do my 32nd one coming up. And it'll either be about more on this topic, but with interaction with other people, uh, or it, or I'm going to move on and uh, talk about DBT's skills for, for a, uh, addictions, uh, and also then move on from there to talk about the two other sets of skills that I haven't yet taught within this podcast, the emotion regulation skills for changing your emotional responses um, and the interpersonal effectiveness skills for dealing better with other people with respect to asking for things and saying no to people and dealing with conflict. So lots of good stuff coming. Um, I appreciate everything I've received by email. I, I keep getting some feedback from people. I'm very grateful for that. Uh, at my email is c.robert.swenson at gmail.com. Um, be well. Have a great week. Uh, I hope this was useful. Uh, let me know. Bye-bye.